Welcome to Women's History Month at Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. We're going to be looking at some fascinating women in history, and I'm thrilled you're here to join us as we do so. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. And welcome also to Women's History Month. So we'll be looking at some historic women this month. And I thought it would be a great time to start with one of my favorite women of British history and French history, as it turns out, Eleanor of Aquitaine. I know some of you have heard me say this before, but Eleanor of Aquitaine has exactly the same number of syllables as Alexander Hamilton, and I believe there's a potential for a Broadway West End hit musical, and I'm looking forward to uh, any of you who have the skills and talents in that area to bring it to us. But for now, let's meet Eleanor of Aquitaine in a non-musical way. So I have a few slides, a few images to show you. She is both queen and legend, and I think that's a great way to think about her. So here we have someone who might be Eleanor of Aquitaine. This is a Psalter of hers, a historic book. And sometimes in his story, we have a little bit of trouble finding her story. And so that's what we're really looking at. A lot of the um, contemporaries of Eleanor's time had their own agendas Many of them were men. Women were not often taught to read and write. And so the records we have, limited as they are, are typically from men. And so we're going to look at Eleanor, but in a way that really helps us maybe get to know her a little bit. She was throughout her adult life, and actually starting when she was a fairly young teenager, unpopular because she didn't meet expectations for a woman of her time. And it is that unpopularity and her willingness to be unpopular that allowed her to take the steps and become this amazing and admirable woman. So we look at her family. Her family controlled much of France, a big chunk of France, the county of Poitou, the Duchy of Gascony, and of course, famously, the Duchy of Aquitaine. And that was about six times as much land as was controlled by the King of France. And so Eleanor's family was very important and wealthy and significant politically as well. William the Troubadour, uh, William the Ninth, was her grandfather. He was infamous for having affairs. He was always, um, well, often associated with courtly love. And he famously had an affair with someone whose name was Dangerous. You know, if you're going to be having an affair with a king, Dangerous is a pretty good name. And it shocked everyone because he was so open about it. Um, the court was partly defined by courtesy, which is this idea that men's lives were enhanced by love. So it was a real leaning into the idea of love and singing and poetry. And as 
William the Ninth became William the Tenth when his son took over. There was some tension with the church. There was some tension with the government. There was a need for um, ongoing struggle. And when William died, Eleanor was his heir. And so she became the Duchess of Aquitaine, this enormous amount of land, many other areas as well. So before he died, her father, William X, had arranged for King Louis VI, whose nickname, not quite as good as Dangereuse, his nickname was Louis the Fat. Now, it did indicate you could afford a lot of food if you were fat, but still, Louis the Fat. Anyway, he was in charge. Eleanor became his ward. And after her father died in 1137, King Louis took control of her and of her lands. And his goal was to marry her to his son. Now, her domains should remain independent, but not if she marries the king's son. And so that was the goal when Louis the Fat took over. And so the idea of the king was if he could unite his son with Eleanor, he would then be king of enormous lands. And as the battle for true control of France was ongoing, this would be a huge thing for him. Now, his son, Louis, was not intended to be the heir. He was the second son, but his elder brother died, which often happens. We find in history, the elder brother, it's always good to have an heir and a spare. So Louis became the heir. Louis was a very pious young man. He had always intended to be in the church. He wanted a career in the church. He was not as interested in a career in being king and ruling as he had been in a career in the church. And so they weren't really a great match. Eleanor was 13 when they were married. Louis was 17. And yet she seems to be the one who is much more mature, much more aware of the ways of the world and the importance of networking and working with others and securing power. And I think this this gift that was given, this gift really represents Eleanor and it does exist. You can visit it in the Louvre Museum. Um, It's opulent. It's decorated. You see the jewels. You see the beautiful engraving. And this is the way Eleanor grew up in a very opulent court, the courts of love with the troubadours and the singing and the poetry and that sort of warmth that comes through in this beautiful vase. Um, It's thought, in fact, Eleanor really loved warmth. And when she moved from the south of France, where she'd grown up in the warmth to Paris, where it was not as warm, it's thought that she may have invented or design maybe some of the first indoor fireplaces or ways of bringing fire and that warmth to indoor spaces. So um, it was interesting that when Eleanor gave this gift to her husband in short order, he gave it to the church. And that is sort of symbolic in a way of their marriage as well, that she brings this elegant, bejeweled, beautiful and he prefers and values the church over that. In fact, interestingly enough, within a few weeks of their marriage, his father dies, Louis the Fat, and they become the king and queen of France. 
Now, Eleanor, although she's a young woman when she comes, is viewed with suspicion. She is the one that is accused and blamed for some of the mistakes Louis makes in his reign. Remember, he didn't want to be king. He didn't really prepare to be king. And he does make some mistakes. And so people assume it's Eleanor's fault. After all, women aren't supposed to try and influence their husbands. And so the fact that she is the one who seems to be more mature and more outspoken and working with some of the nobles, oh, that's really not good. And she does um, exercise some influence on behalf of her sister and try and sway some decisions toward her sister and sort of a scandalous marriage there. And that leads to some warfare and Louis makes some bad decisions there. And again, Eleanor is blamed, even though he's the king and he's the one making decisions in the um, victory at Vitry, a number of innocent people are massacred. And so even though Louis is victorious, it's a terrible blight and he feels very guilty. And for that reason, he's very happy to go on crusade as penance for that. So he has the idea he's going to go on one of these. He's going to participate in this first crusade from the French perspective. So this is the first time France is going to be involved in the crusades and he's expecting success. And so he turns to Eleanor and he wants from her. He wants troops. He wants money. After all, Aquitaine, very wealthy and all of those lands of hers. But in fact, she decides, well, if my forces are coming and my money's coming, I think I'll come too. Now, this was shocking at the time that the wife of the king, the queen, would expect to go on a crusade. That is not a place for a woman. And it was um, such a scandal that future crusades started to have rules that women couldn't come. So Eleanor sort of started that, and that resulted in some rules forbidding women from coming. Well, when the crusade did not go well, guess who gets blamed? Eleanor, of course. Now, there was a pause in some of the fighting, and they went to Antioch, where Eleanor's uncle Raymond, and that's what this is, Raymond of Poitiers, welcoming Louis to Antioch. And so there's this moment where they go to Antioch, and this is just an oasis for Eleanor. It's her family. It's people she knows. It's very much like the court she grew up in. And she wanted to stay in Antioch and work with Raymond. Raymond asked Eleanor and Louis to stay with him and to sort of pursue the Crusades through him and through another direction. And Louis said, no, we are on our way to the Holy Land. And he really forced Eleanor to go with him. Eleanor wanted to stay in the fact that she was known to have uh, defied the king and wanted to stay. He insisted she go and she did eventually go with Louis. But the fact that she was so outspoken about disagreeing with him, of course, turned into rumors that she was having an affair with her uncle. So sexuality was used against her. Oh, if she's disagreeing with her husband, she must be having an affair with somebody. So we we see that used. And that when they get to the Holy Land, it doesn't go any better there. Louis is not really well equipped to lead troops in battle, and it doesn't go well. On their way back, as he he's soon to become her ex-husband, um, they do make an attempt on their way back to France after this failed campaign in the Holy Land. They visit Pope Eugene III, and he blesses them. And one of the sticking points in the marriage between Eleanor and Louis 
is that she has had daughters and not sons. And this could be a reason for her husband to put her aside. But the Pope says, oh, no, no, no. Stay together. I will bless your marriage bed. You will have a son. Well, interestingly, after the Pope blesses their marriage bed, Eleanor does get pregnant again, but she gives birth to another daughter. And so in 1152, the bishops, the French bishops, declare their marriage to be invalid. Now, it's thought that Eleanor was not at all unhappy about this. In fact, she seems to have wanted the marriage to be dissolved. This was not working out very well for her. Louis was becoming more and more controlling and giving her less and less opportunity to even be herself. So this little chart um, shows a couple of things. He is the king of France, and before him was Louis VI, then Louis the king of France, and he's succeeded by his son. He remarries and has a son, okay? But in his role of Duke of Aquitaine, this is very interesting because of the way that the contract was written, their marriage contract. Of course, before he is the Duke of Aquitaine, Eleanor, as a sole Duchess of Aquitaine, She's the preceding sort of Duke in a way. Then they share the role during their marriage between 1137 and 1152. After their divorce, he wants to remain the Duke of Aquitaine and and keep holding all those lands. But that's not the way the contract was written. And so he is both preceded by and succeeded by Eleanor in his role in Aquitaine. So she takes all those lands back. Now, the the strict reason, of course, they can't really get the marriage annulled because she hasn't had sons. And so the strict reason, which is um, so often used in these times, is that they are too closely related. So even though they got a dispensation, the Pope says, okay, that dispensation doesn't really count. And so the marriage is annulled. Well, it turns out that um, within a few short weeks, Eleanor is married to somebody else to whom she is even more closely related. So Eleanor does seem to have been planning to end her time in France, and she is looking to England. Here we have Matilda. Now, Matilda is a very strong woman, also unpopular because she does not conform to expectations. In fact, she is the sole um, legitimate heir when her father dies she tries to become queen. She does have to fight her cousin, Stephen of Blois, for the throne. And there is a moment where she has defeated him. She attempts to go to London and be crowned in Westminster Abbey. But it turns out she is perceived as being too proud, too forceful, behaving in unladylike ways, as you might do if you're fighting for the throne. And so they refuse to crown her. Her son, Henry, continues to fight for her behalf and eventually succeeds Stephen as king of England. Well, this is the Henry before he becomes king that is married to Eleanor of Aquitaine. And it is arranged within eight weeks of the dissolution of Eleanor's marriage to Louis. And so it really does seem like some processes were already in play for it to happen that quickly. Louis is furious and we begin to have battles and competitions 
and um, a lot of anger between France and England, specifically between Louis and Henry, Eleanor's two husbands, the ex and the current, for a long time. And we'll see their children have very interesting relationships as well. Now, this is important because here's where we get the Plantagenet dynasty really starting. And so we look to this new husband of Eleanor. He is not king when she marries him, but within just a few years, there he is king and she is crowned queen consort again. So she has been crowned queen consort of France and now she is crowned queen consort of England. The other thing this means is all those lands in France now through her marriage to Henry II become English lands. And so let's take a look. The areas in pink, Poitou, La Marche, Aquitaine, all of these lands in Aquitaine and see England is pink as well. Well, there you go. If you are the French king, you are furious. Not only has your wife very publicly and very quickly married someone else within eight weeks, but those lands that you were so eager and determined and really needed to have to strengthen your role as king of France, they now are part of the are part of the English crown. These are now English crown lands because they are the lands of the queen consort of England. So Eleanor has literally changed the face of France and Europe by bringing these lands first to the French throne, and now she has brought her lands to the English throne, and the power balance there has totally shifted. The other interesting thing that happens, you know, she's married to Louis for 15 years. They have two daughters. She's married to Henry in 15 years. They have eight children, including five sons. Now, in these days, what you want, of course, is a son. Four of those sons live to adulthood. So she more than fulfills her responsibility as queen consort of England. She is older than Henry II, but they seem to, at least in the first part of their reign, get on very well. So her children, and you can follow along these images here, William, he was intended, William is of course the name of Eleanor's family. And it seems that William was intended to inherit Aquitaine and those other lands rather than the crown of England. So William, Eleanor's family name, unfortunately, William dies at age three. So we'll look at that. But before then, young Henry, the next son, he's the one, although he's second son when he's born, he is seen as the heir to the English throne. He is named for his father, the King of England, and he is anticipated as or succeeding his father on the throne. Then you have Matilda, and then you have Richard. Now, Richard is quite possibly Eleanor's favorite son. It's certainly often shown that way. She, after William dies, she becomes the one Eleanor prepares and looks to, to inherit Aquitaine and her lands. Then you have Geoffrey, then Eleanor, named for her, 
Joan, and finally John, who becomes King John. So this is an enormously important dynastic family, the family of Henry and Eleanor. And it's really interesting because they both seem to anticipate their children will split up England and Eleanor's Aquitaine and other French lands. It's not what happens, but that seems to be what's anticipated. Now, there are troubles as they're building this empire. It, of course, is not popular everywhere. It's There are troubles between the two of them. They're both very outspoken, very powerful personalities. As Henry goes off to fight wars, Eleanor is regent in England. Again, early in their reign, they really do make a good team. Um, Louis of France now has a son, and so now he's fighting for more control of some of those French lands. Um, Henry, after a while, is on a collision course with his own church because of his relationship with Thomas Becket, who becomes Archbishop of Canterbury. And so that's not going very well. After William dies, um, King Henry really leans into his son, who is called Young Henry. And Henry decides he wants his son crowned as the young king, which means there are two kings of England. Eleanor is opposed to that. She doesn't think it's a good idea, but that's what Henry wants. He wants the succession to be very clear. So he is the king, but he also has his son as the young king. So you see Eleanor having influence in some ways. In some ways, Henry's doing things that she thinks could cause problems. And she's right. They do. Now, in the court of Henry and Eleanor, um, things go well. But as a younger husband, Henry believes he is entitled to have all kinds of affairs and to, you know, get his jollies in any way he can. The most notorious of his affairs is with Fair Rosamond. Rosamond is his very public mistress. He brings her to court. Um, there are all kinds of legends that Eleanor tries to kill her, and Henry, in order to save Rosamond, hides her in a maze, and Eleanor finds her out and poisons her. There are all kinds of legends. Um, she may not really have expected fidelity from Henry, but she probably didn't expect to be so publicly humiliated by his clear preference for a mistress. So they come to some sort of an agreement and it is decided that Eleanor will leave the English court, but they seem to be on very good terms. Henry takes her to Poitiers where she sets up her own court. She is ruling her lands in France on her own and she spends all kinds of time there and her son, Richard, comes to be with her. Remember, she has her eye on Richard to take over. And so while she's there from 1168 to 1173 in Poitiers, there are some rumors of these courts of love that she sets up with her daughter, Marie, who comes over and um, perhaps courtly love is being examined and, and they are looking into that. But at the same time, Eleanor is establishing herself as the Duchess and as in some ways a regent in Poitiers and in Aquitaine and setting up Richard to take over. And so you see Eleanor and Richard co-signing some documents. You also see 
Henry inviting Eleanor still to participate with him in some official business back in England. So she does travel back and forth. So during this period of time, there is a lot going on. There are a number of public events where Eleanor and Henry are seen together. They put on a public front, even though at other times he's with Rosamund and she goes to her land in France with Richard. Now, the idea of courtly love, and this sort of evolves into this image again, there's a thought that she grew up with the troubadours. She grew up in this idea that men are bettered by being in love and by having an unavailable mistress. And so these legends of courtly love do come out of this time, the idea of chivalry and fighting for the honor of the woman you love, fighting for the honor of your queen. All of these ideas of courtly love are associated with Eleanor. There's also supposedly an Arthurian legend and a prophecy associated with Eleanor that she will have her greatest influence in her third nesting. That's the quote they use, third nesting. So her first is with her first husband. Her second is with her second husband. And we'll see her third nesting come. And you really do see Eleanor fully coming into all of her power. So the notions and the legends of Eleanor, we don't really have any documentation that there were these courts of love. We do know that she was down there. We know that Marie visited her, but we don't have a sense that there really were these legends. These legendary courts actually took place where love was put on trial. But the idea of courtly love is very strongly associated with Eleanor and with this time she spent in France. Now, one of the things young Henry finds, young King Henry, he's crowned in 1170 and he's sort of looking around and his father, the real King Henry, doesn't really let him do anything and doesn't really give him any land or anything to work with. In the meanwhile, his younger brother, Richard, look at all the land that Richard has. And so I've made up this quote for Henry. He has more land than I do. But Eleanor's two sons are beginning to realize that Richard got the better deal. He is actually exercising direct power and control in the Duchy of Aquitaine with all of that land in that light pink, whereas young Henry, the elder brother, the young king, is not able to do all that much in England. So Henry, young Henry, decides to rebel against his father. He actually gets all his brothers on board and they rebel against their father, the king, to make young Henry the king. They all agree to that. And Eleanor does support them. Now, Henry, King Henry, has his troops. He has the royal troops um, and he is able to defeat his sons. And there is a rumor that maybe Eleanor didn't just support her sons. She may have directly encouraged her sons. She may have even given them some suggestions on how to defeat their father. She may have been quite actively involved in that. So when Henry defeats his sons, when King Henry II defeats his sons, he forgives them but he blames Eleanor. Now, we've seen her blamed for all kinds of things that go wrong, including in her first husband, and now we have her second husband blaming her as well. So he decides to imprison Eleanor, and she is, in fact, imprisoned 
for 16 years. She's imprisoned for 11 from 1173 to 1189 for those 16 years. Now it's possible he wanted to get an annulment. Henry wanted to get an annulment, but he is not ever able to do so. And actually when young Henry becomes very sick and realizes he's dying. He reaches out to his father. They're reconciled to some degree. I mean, technically, officially, King Henry II forgives his sons. There is still some tension, as you might imagine. But as young Henry is dying, he begs his father to release his mother. He said, you know, this was not her fault. Please release her. And Henry says, no, I don't think so. Now, this is possibly, this is a model, Eleanor was held at Old Sarum, and this is a model um, seen from the top and then a model built of the kinds of places she might have been imprisoned. So although she was contained and her travel was very limited, when we think of imprisonment, she certainly was not sent to a dungeon. She wasn't sent to the Tower of London, which was also a palace, of course. She was sent away from court and kept away from court For the most part, we see a couple of exceptions to that, but her travel was limited. She could not go anywhere without the permission of Henry, which he did not usually grant. And she was only allowed to have the kind of life that she enjoyed with a lot of people. She loved celebrations. Remember, she grew up in that time of the troubadours and dancing and singing and poetry. And that's what she loved when she went to visit her uncle. She really loved that. And so being excluded from that was difficult for her and did feel like an imprisonment of sorts. She was moved around. She didn't spend all her time here. She was moved around to various places. Now, there was a Christmas court. This is one of my favorite movies, um, historical movies. One of the first ones I saw, The Lion in Winter, which is sort of about Eleanor of Aquitaine and Henry II. It's really a great movie. And it takes on the idea. It sets a Christmas court in 1183, and it has... Eleanor arrive and the two of them are bantering and all of their children are sort of awful in this movie. And the French King's son comes to visit. It's just really quite exciting. But there really was a Christmas court, not in 1183, but in 1182, where Henry did have Eleanor join him and put on a display of sorts of unity, bringing her to his court, setting her up as queen. They are still married. She is still queen consort. So the movie is sort of based on something real. Of course, there are a lot of inaccuracies, but it is loads and loads of fun. If you haven't seen it, I know it was remade. This is my favorite version, Um, but it is a great idea. And that idea, that notion that although she'd been in prison, He does reach out and bring her to a Christmas court. That much of it is true. When Henry dies, Richard becomes king. So his first brother, William, has died. As I mentioned, young Henry, young King Henry becomes very ill and dies before his father. So Richard becomes his father's heir. Richard, who has spent all that time in Aquitaine, who was Eleanor's seemingly favorite son, certainly the one that she has with her, 
it's Richard and Henry doesn't necessarily want Richard to succeed him, but he really doesn't have any choice. And one of Richard's very first, the very first official act he takes is to set his mother free. And this is when we really see that third nesting I mentioned of Eleanor's because it is in the reign of her son, Richard, that Eleanor really achieves the greatest autonomy. She is a widow now. She was kept um, quiet in some ways during the marriage to her first husband. Louis really tried to control her in her marriage to her second husband. It started well, but by the end, she is literally imprisoned by her second husband. But in the reign of her son, Richard, Eleanor really is acting regnant, acting regent, acting monarch in England for much of the time. Although Richard has an image and a legend, Richard the Lionheart, it turns out that he spent very little time in England running the show. And the person really ruling in England on his behalf, but it was Eleanor. She is the one that worked so hard to establish his reputation, to create that image of him in England so that the people continued to be willing to fund, you know, with their money, with their taxes, his wars. So the idea of Richard ruling and the legend of him. And we see him here in this glorious in front of parliament. That's the legend that has come down of Richard the first, Richard the Lionheart, the start of everything. And yes, he was a crusader. He spent a lot of time on crusades, not maybe always as successful as one might have us believe as Eleanor and Richard might have us believe. But some accounts think he only spent about six months of his 10-year reign actually in England. Now, one of the other places that we see Richard's um, legend come through, and again, I'm just telling you something about me. This is one of my very favorite movies of Robin Hood. In the Robin Hood legend, that sort of nickname Richard of the Last Reel, often in the Robin Hood story and in the Robin Hood movies that we see today, the idea of Richard, the legend of Richard, this great king, this lion-like king, sort of informs the shape of the story. And then in the last reel, he appears in his glory and in all of his legendary power and prowess in England to rule. That wasn't really always his priority. And so again, this idea of this kind of a Richard that to this day, Richard of the last reel, that edge, that legend really does continue. And much, I would say most, in fact, almost all of that is thanks to his mother in her third nesting, who is ruling on his behalf and increasing and establishing his legend. Now, when Richard dies, his brother, John, becomes the next king. Jeffrey, his next oldest brother, John, remember, is the youngest brother. So it should have gone to Jeffrey because Richard doesn't have children. So the throne should have passed to Jeffrey, but Jeffrey died. Jeffrey, however, has a son who makes a play for the throne. But Eleanor, despite, according to accounts, 
recognizing John's limitations as king, Eleanor does support John's claim to the throne as an adult. This is still a time of crusading, a time of danger, and Eleanor felt like the country needed an adult on the throne. She may also have believed that as John's mother, she might be able to continue to have more influence and more power than she might have had as Arthur's grandmother. But in any case, Eleanor recognizes John. There are battles between John and Arthur for the throne, and she is um, captured by Arthur's forces at one point. He captures and imprisons his grandmother, which does seem a little bit scandalous in some ways, but she is freed and she retires um, and about 1200, 1201, she is spending less time at court. She does bring Blanche, her granddaughter, through her French marriage, her French granddaughter, to marry Philip's son. And so she brings, you know, she is traveling back and forth, rather her English granddaughter, to marry Philip's French son. I said the country's backwards, but she is still traveling, but less and less. And in fact, eventually in 1203, Eleanor dies, but the legend continues. Now, this is, of course, a very fanciful, clearly not accurate, but this is the kind of legend that Eleanor of Aquitaine continues to inspire. This is the way she is thought to have perhaps looked when she went on crusade. Of course, she didn't look like that, but when she when she went on crusade. But that idea of her being this amazing, powerful woman has some positive connotations. And we look at some of those today. However, in her time, again, she was very unpopular. She was often the scapegoat when things went wrong and she was not given credit. It's Richard the Lionheart who gets top billing, even though it was Eleanor who survived. She outlived all of her husband's. She outlived many of her children, not John, but outlived everybody. But her youngest, you know, there were some of her younger children, but all of her sons died before she did except John. And her legend does live on. Eventually, when she was died, she was entombed back at Fontevraud Abbey along with Henry, her husband, and Richard. And so where her final resting place is is with her English family. So she seems to have completely, you know, gone that direction. But with the two men whose legends she created in many ways, enabled Henry to become the kind of king he was by providing him all of that land from France, the finances, the the troops that came from her French land, and also ultimately Richard as she creates his legend, as she helps perpetuate that legend, and as she rules England on his behalf when he's gone almost all the time, 10 years, and he's there about six months. So the, all of that comes through Eleanor. So I'm really excited and happy and pleased to have been able to share with you the story, some of the highlights of Eleanor of Aquitaine. And as we think about Women's History Month and some of these amazing women in history, 
I think it's a good idea to just sort of look back and recognize that some of them don't get the credit they deserve, but it's always good to take the time to get to know these women and with them, keep shaking up history together. Thank you for joining us for this episode of British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, and a special Women's History Month. I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a rating, maybe share with a friend, and think about becoming a patron. I'm so happy to have you with me shaking up history together.